Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we take a look at the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, as you may have guessed, in my basement, not the studio. Our host, Nate, the Great Pfeiffer, is not joining us tonight. And uh, I, I owe you a little bit of an apology for this this week. So we... we try to stay consistent and put our episodes out every week. This last weekend, when we would have done that, I was at a soccer games with my son in Colorado and did not get home till Monday morning at 4 a.m. So Nate was planning on on helping me knock one out Monday night, early Tuesday morning. Um, but I, I, I had a test I needed to take early Tuesday morning, and as luck would have it, Monday night, I fell ill, uh, quite ill. I was in my bed with the shivers the f- and, and fever dreams all night and uh, ended up being sick and losing my voice and not able to record for, for most of this week. And and so Nate and I could not get together and, and find a good time, uh, especially with the holiday this week, just uh, just a series of, of events, I guess, uh, a perfect storm that made it so that we had to come a little bit later. And, and here I am trying to get you some content from, from the basement of my home now that my voice has mostly returned. And, and hopefully this is still worth your listen. So thank you for joining. Thank you for your patience and for waiting this holiday week. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And let's, let's jump into this. This is going to be first and second Peter. And... The, the nice thing about this is it's Peter. It, Peter's one of the most talked about people in the New Testament, aside from Jesus Christ. And, and we see a lot of his personality. This is somebody that Nate actually resonates very strongly with. And, and we see his character, but now we actually get to hear Peter speaking for himself. Not someone else talking about Peter or saying what Peter does or what Peter says. But Peter writing a letter and speaking for himself, and and I like that. I like to hear what he has to say. There's not a lot of question on the authenticity of the first epistle of Peter. Most scholars agree that he is the the author. There is a little bit of question as to whether or not he wrote the second epistle. I'm going to favor that that he did. I don't know. Both both epistles are very nice. Uh, They're interesting. They're a little bit different. But let's, uh, let's dive into this and see what we've got. First off, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And, and I'm going to stop us right there. Elect. I think this word often gets conflated with you know the cream of the crop, the best of the best, or, 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 or being something better than something else, and and certainly it can take that meaning. But elect at its root, at its core, really just means chosen, and and I want to focus on that. In in this case, this is what it means to be chosen to to choose, and that's that's where I want to focus on with what elect means here in in this verse. That being said, let's go back into Peter and take a look at what this is uh, telling us. Verse 2 again, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And foreknowledge is another word that I want to put some attention on. If I were to tell you and read this word to you in the Greek, I think most of you are going to understand this word immediately. And, And it comes from two words, pro, from before, and gnosis, which means knowledge. So prognosis. And in medical terms, we hear this all the time. It's a, it's a medical word. What's the prognosis, Doc? The prognosis is not, not the diagnosis, not, not saying what do you have. What's the outlook, the knowledge beforehand? And, and so they call it here foreknowledge, but I, I like prognosis, and I like that it's almost put in medical terms. And, and what you're doing with the prognosis is, Based on your experience and and you seeing this and knowing the character of it, what's the likely outcome going to be? 
in medical terms, is, is he going to live or is he going to die? Is you know what, what's going to happen, Doc? What, what's the prognosis? What's the outlook? How's this going to How's this going to end up? And how is God making a prognosis? We go back here, elect according to the prognosis of God, the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ unto you and peace be multiplied. So with the whole verse in context here, what what, what what is it telling us? It's telling us that they can be chosen according to the prognosis of God. In other words, God had enough experience, enough familiarity with us to know that we were going to need a Savior. According to the prognosis of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto the obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What's the prognosis? God knew us. And how did he know us if we weren't with him, if we didn't live with him, if we weren't around him? Enough for him to be familiar with us, to know us, to know us enough to offer a prognosis that if I am going to send these people to this world, I will need a savior in order for them to be chosen in order for them to make it to stand before me, to be clean, as it talks about in the other scriptures, the prognosis is they need a Savior. What was the prognosis of God? Death. It's why he needs a Savior, which leads to, who shall I send? And Christ standing up and saying, here am I, send me. That's the prognosis of God. And then it comes down to, do we trust the plan of God or do we substitute it with our own plan? Now, there's something also important about the order of things in this verse that kind of shocked me when I read it first. Going back again to the prognosis of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. Now, now think about that for a second. Because if it was me writing this or if I was thinking about this, I think I had the order reversed. I think I would say that through obedience unto the sanctification of the Spirit. See, I tend to think that I have to first obey in order for God to forgive me, in order for God to make this right, in order for God to sanctify me, obedience comes first, right? And I think we get into the habit of of, of thinking this way or the pattern of looking at it this way. First, I must be baptized. First, I must follow him. First, I must do whatever he asks me to do that I might be sanctified. And it gets us in this mindset that it's almost a a requirement to be obedient, to be perfect, to be good in order to be sanctified. But the order that's listed here, as we're talking about the prognosis of God and what it's going to take to be chosen, is that through sanctification comes obedience. And and I've had the order wrong a long time in my mind or how I think about this. The idea is that it doesn't require obedience first. It requires desire first. And when I desire to come to God, when I desire to follow him, to be close to him, to see what he has to offer, even if I know I'm not perfect. I Maybe I'm frustrated with myself. Maybe I'm frustrated with my inability to keep simple commandments or, or to do things I know that I, I, I shouldn't. But I want, right? It begins with a hope, a yearning, a desire, a want, a something. And, and as that hope brings us close to God and God loves us and takes pity on us and, and showers us with mercy... And sanctification, that's what brings obedience. When we feel the sanctification, when we feel the Spirit, when we feel good, doesn't that motivate us to want to feel that more often, to, to, to want to have that in our life? Doesn't that inspire the small changes in us? Doesn't that inspire us to be better people? So that obedience comes after sanctification, not the other way around. 
And, and I think that's an important distinction. And maybe, maybe even by putting the simple requirement that we desire this first, I'm still trying to stick us first. Maybe, maybe I'm still saying we have to do something in order to receive this. But see, this verse is telling us, no, that sanctification, that, I, I mean, go back to earlier where it says we love him because he loved us first. Maybe it's not even that we have to do anything on our part. Maybe, maybe God loves us and gives us at some point in our lives that feeling of love, that feeling of sanctification, that feeling of we're special, we're his children, and he has a plan for us. And as we feel that, it even stokes the desire to come closer to him that also fuels that change, that also fuels that obedience. And so if any of us are hanging back or or, or restricting ourselves from, from church or from ordinances or from covenants simply because we want to make sure that we are obedient first, it feels like we've cut ourselves off from that sanctification process that will help us become obedient. And so we've limited our ability to ever be obedient. We've, we've denied ourselves of the blessings of God without cause. And it's interesting, if Nate was here, he would point this out in the sacrament. In the prayer, it says, and witness unto me that they are willing, that they are willing to take upon them the name of my son and to keep his commandments and to remember him. And, and, and I think the key word here is willing. It doesn't say that they have already demonstrated to perfection that they have taken upon my name and that they have already demonstrated that they have kept all of my commandments, that they have already demonstrated these things. Then I'm going to bless them and sanctify them and cleanse them. No, no, no. It says, if you are willing and so there again, it starts almost with a desire, but sometimes that desire comes because of the way we feel already. And how do we feel? That, that feeling is the sanctification that happens to drive the desire that later drives obedience. And I think the same thing would be reflected in the Temple Recommend interview with the questions that we're asked are we striving to do? Is this the desire? Is this what we're pushing for? Is this what we are earnest about? If so, come to Christ. Come feel the sanctifying power because that is what will help you change and then obedience is going to follow. Let's not cut ourselves off from Christ. Many are called, but few are chosen. Maybe part of the reason why they aren't chosen is because they feel like they have to be obedient first instead of being sanctified first, enjoy that sanctification, and seek it more. And so getting that order right, I felt, was very important for me as I was reading uh, here in First Peter, as Peter's explaining this. And, and think again, this is coming from Peter. And this is one thing that I really wanted to point out as I was reading this, as I would read this, even, even verse 7. Let me read verse 7, and I'll, and I'll get back to the point that I'm trying to make. It's not even here, and I'm already distracting myself. But here, verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory of the appearing of Jesus Christ. When you have somebody talking about a trial of faith, and, and this is going to tie back into what I mean by Peter. There's a difference when the person that's speaking to you has the background that Peter does. When he talks about sanctification coming before obedience, you have to remember that this is a man who, who being an apostle for how long, still denies Christ three times. This is a man who was brash, who was quick to anger, who didn't always get it. 
And so when he talks to me about a trial of his faith, or when he talks to me about sanctification unto obedience, man, the gravity of it, the weight of it. He becomes a preacher, but a a preacher that speaks to my soul, not just because of the words that he's saying, but the weight which with he, he says it with. His experience, his story, his background, that when I hear him say it, because it's almost as if I'm hearing him say it when I read these words, I think about his experiences and where he's been. And, and even through the text, I can feel a greater profoundness to what he's saying. Does that make sense? It's like when you hear somebody who's, who's young, who, who's maybe recently married, and, and maybe hasn't experienced a lot in life yet, and they're giving a lesson in, in priesthood or, or gospel doctrine or church, and they start talking about trials. And, and they tell you, you just got to hang in there like Job. And, and, and they got a big smile on their face, and they say, oh, yeah, trials are the best thing, and we're going to... But you don't feel the depth to what they're saying because perhaps you look at them and say, what trials have you known? Are you speaking of experience, or are you speaking of, of something that you've heard so many times that you've accepted it as true. And, and there's a difference between knowing it's true on paper and believing it and seeing it and living it. And for me, Peter's lived it. And there's a reason why Peter puts sanctification unto obedience rather than obedience unto sanctification. And how much did it sting Peter when Christ himself The man he loves turns to him and says, Get thee behind me, Satan. This man's experienced a lot. And he hasn't always made the right choice. But he knows what it feels like to be in the presence of God. He knows what it feels like to be sanctified. And that desire, that yearning, pulls him closer to Christ to receive those moments and helps him, after sanctification, to learn obedience. And at this point, it probably becomes a cycle, right? We become obedient, and we draw closer to God, and and He sanctifies us. And because He sanctifies us, we want more, and we desire more. And and it's a process that drives us closer to God and, and unifies us to Him, and, and almost seals us to him in the same way that Christ was nailed to the cross. We become nailed to our Savior. We almost become the burden, the cross that, that he was hung on. But he's the one that's going to lift us up just as we lifted him up. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful thought. I, I really liked reading this here at the beginning of Peter and, and thinking about the order of these words. And there's a few things about the order of the words here. And I've got to move on. I don't have Nate here to try to keep me on time, so I've got to try to police myself, make sure we keep flowing through this, and, and I think we've got enough of that exper- expressed right here that maybe let's go on to the next chapter. And and he talks a lot about, uh, let's go verse uh, chapter 2, verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lust which war against the soul. This is going to be a big part of not only 1 Peter, but 2 Peter. And part of the reason why I like thinking of these as unified from the same author, Peter talks a lot about the lusts. And when he talks about the lusts, he's talking about the desires of our soul. And I think often we, we like to associate the word lust with, with perhaps sexual appetite. But lust here with Peter, we're talking about the desires if we were to go into the Book of Mormon, this is going to be the classic discussion about the natural man, the things that our bodies desire. And, and we want to talk about the depth that Peter's coming at this from. Think about the lusts of his body yearning for sleep. When he is in the Garden of Gethsemane and Christ asks, to, for him to stay awake with him while he prays. And when he comes back, what happened? 
Peter succumbed to the lust, or in other words, the desires of his body to rest. They've been up all night. He's, he's taken a lot in. And Christ says, no, I need you to stay awake. I need you to stay awake with me for one more hour. Lusts don't have to be of a sexual nature. Surely they are. But anything that pulls us away from, from the Lord, if we talk about drawing closer to him and his sanctification and purifying power drives us to obedience, but then also separating from him and the things of the body that maybe pull us away from him, the appetites of the flesh. That's what we're talking about here. And I think maybe the most common appetite of the flesh, especially in our day and age, is probably distraction or boredom. When we're trying to to focus and instead maybe our phones start speaking to us or, or we, we want to pull it out and check the, the, the latest headlines or social media to see people with people what people are saying or, or send a text maybe just scroll through the no no the the news I almost said noise I guess it's the same thing and and it's not it's not to say that these things are wrong don't don't get me wrong they they're all important they have their place but if it's distracting us right if it's pulling us away from from where we should be focusing our attention at the moment then it's the desires of the flesh, right? It's our appetites. It's, it's these things that we're actually training and strengthening to, to distract us. And, and we're feeding that part of us to where we become distracted much easier. We become really good at getting distracted. As opposed to disciplined at putting those distractions aside and drawing closer to the Lord. Obviously, like we said, there's a time and a place. But this is going to be a big thing for Peter, is learning to, to focus on the Savior and draw ourselves closer to him. Next, Peter's going to talk a little bit more about controlling some of these passions, but in a way that, I, I, I don't know, he takes it into marriage, and, and the way he describes this marriage relationship is very similar to what we've already seen from Paul on a number of occasions. And, and honestly, it comes across a little bit harsh, but let's see if we can't understand what Peter's really trying to say here when he speaks of this. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. And yeah, really, you should have to subject yourself to your husband? He has to rule over you? That doesn't seem fair. And if that's where we leave it, if that's where we stop, it, it, it's not right. You have to balance this out. You have to round it out. And let's see if we can't make sense of what Peter's saying here. Verse 7, likewise ye husbands. So it's not just that, that wives are subject to their husbands, but likewise ye husbands. What does it mean to be likewise? As well you must subject yourselves to your wives. And, and it even talks about, there's a few things that get thrown around here, right? Verse 7 an, um, subject with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. And, and there's, there's a few things that are said here. When you talk about vessels, and, and he says that, that men being a stronger vessel, women being a weaker vessel, and then he talks also about knowledge, giving honor unto to, to wives there. And, and when, I, when I'm reading this, honestly, if I try to take a step back and understand what Peter's trying to tell me here, I think the best way I can explain this, the best way I see this, and, and feel free to, 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 to write in, let me know if you, you see this differently or if, if you think I'm wrong on this, I, I'd be happy to, to learn from what you've got to say. But this is what I'm seeing. In the scriptures, we have plenty of examples of instead of subjecting ourselves or someone subjecting themselves to another in a relationship, they're overpowering or, or trying to take advantage or, or trying to rule over. And when we talk about strong vessel, weak vessel, for every instance that you see, for example, a David forcing himself on a Bathsheba and using his power and his strength, both physical and political, to get gain and to rule over someone he shouldn't, Yet you also see instances 
where somebody through their knowledge or their cunning or their the creative taking advantage and trying to rule over the opposite sex in in wicked ways like Salome getting John the Baptist's head chopped off or where you have I'm trying to think of a good example here uh the Delilah tricking Samson into getting his hair cut or at least being persistent enough until she gets what she wants out of this deal and 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 any relationship where one person whether it is the husband or whether it is the wife tries to get the advantage and rule over the other whether it is in knowledge or whether it is in power it's not going to work and that's why he's saying here likewise to the men you have to subject yourselves to your wives it always has to be about subjection and see isn't this the whole plan of salvation described in the beginning? Because you had, who shall I send, that needs to subject themselves to my will and needs to go there not to rule over everybody, but to, to submit themselves to them. Didn't Christ submit himself to us? And isn't he considered the husband? Yet the husband is submitting himself to the wife to the point where he gave his life and he, and he allowed himself to be spit on, rejected, scourged, crucified. He submitted to everything. What was the alternative? Somebody else said, I have a plan. Rather than subjecting myself to anything, I am going to rule over this. And so I think what Peter is saying here, if I were to go back and try to sum this up in a way that makes sense to me, is that in any relationship, when you have a fight or a struggle for power to say who is greater, whether it be through knowledge or whether it be through strength or whatever, whatever it's going to be, one party seeking to take advantage of another, it's not going to work. Both husband and wife need to humbly look to build each other up, to sacrifice of themselves to exalt the other. And it only works if the other is also sacrificing themselves to exalt you. That's what makes a marriage work. That's what makes our relationship with Christ work. And go back to what we were talking about here in the beginning with Peter, that it is because Christ gave of himself, holding nothing back, that we become sanctified, and then we in turn give up and sacrifice of ourselves these, these desires, these lusts, these passions that Peter's talking about. We lay them aside to try to follow him, and through that we learn obedience. And through that he becomes God and our Savior, and we become gods with him. And, and it's like, if, if, if Nate was here, he would appreciate this, going all the way back to that, that one, the Emperor's New Groove, where, where the llama and the guy link arms, and it's only through leaning on each other and giving up of yourself to the other person that both pushing are going to work. I don't think Peter's saying anything about if you're in a relationship where one person is willing to take and take and take, you just need to lay down and keep giving. He's saying that's wrong. Nevertheless, a man must also submit. You've, you've got to have both sides of this equation for a relationship to work. I think that's what Peter's trying to say, and I, I hope I made sense of that. I don't have Nate here looking at me funny or, or helping me out with this, so th this, is, this is my best attempt at this. I hope this landed. I hope this made sense. And if it didn't, I'm sure I'll hear about it in the comments, and, and I welcome them. Please help me to see this for, for what it needs to be seen. Moving on, Peter ends this chapter, this book, with a few great quotes. And, and rather than getting into the details of all of these, I think I'm just going to read a handful of verses, and then I'm going to dive into Second Peter, because there's a lot of great things to talk into Second Peter. Uh, verse uh, 15 of chapter 3, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you for a reason of that hope that is in the meekness 
that is in you with meekness and fear. And then I love this verse too. This is chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Chilling words. And this is coming again from man speaking of experience. And when you hear him say this, and you think about this, Peter, you know, the one that walked on water for a minute and then terrified almost drowned. He was in the boat when it almost sank. Master, the tempest is raging. He denied Christ three times at the end. This man, I, I love to, to vision him when I read these words. All right, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, 6, and 7. And again, the order of these words, I think, is going to be very important. And beside this, giving all diligence, and to your faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness. Stop here for a second. Godliness. That's an interesting word. And, and when I read godliness, I think, oh, isn't that to be like God? Godly? Godliness? To be like God? And that's not what this word means. Because you would think if it was to be like God, wouldn't it be the very last thing that's mentioned here in this? That, that, that after all of these things, you will be godlike? But this word, if you go and you look up the Greek here, it, it means... To fear God, to love God, to give God due consideration. I, I like putting it that way. To, to give him due reverence. Add to patience, reverence to God, and to reverence to God, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, kindness charity. Now, you notice what just happened here in this epistle from Peter. We must, at least how he put this in the order, learn to love God, reverence for God, love for God, before we can have brotherly kindness and then charity. And I think it's very important because you see the same order reflected in the commandments, it was the first great commandment to love God. And then the second one was like unto it, was to love our neighbor. But how can you effectively love your neighbor if you do not learn to love God first? Because God, he has in his mind our happiness. That was the design of his plan. What can I do? Men are that they might have joy. The purpose for creating us, the purpose for everything. God spared nothing in being able to give us this opportunity. In order for this earth to have even been created, he had to have been willing to sacrifice his only son. If you're looking at this from the perspective of God the Father, and if you're looking at this from the perspective of Jesus Christ, he also spared nothing. He laid everything out, gave his own life. Why? So that we could be here, so that the creation could happen, so that we could live, so that we could love, so that we could be happy, so that we can enjoy, so that we can return and live with God and find fulfillment. Everything about them is, is to create happiness and peace. What was the alternative then? The alternative to God's plan would lead to not a creation, but a destruction, a lack, a missing. There could be no earth. There would be no agency. There would be no ability to choose. There would be no ability to be happy, to grow, to progress, to become like him. All of that gone. So, if God has a plan for us, for our happiness, and has shown a commitment to that plan to where he spared not his own son, to where his own son spared not his own life, and we do not 
understand and know and love that God and instead think that we have a different plan and propose a different solution and replace God's plan with that out of our love for God's children, we say, follow me, here am I, send me, I have a different route. Out of what might be what we think is a love for our brethren is actually misplaced. And instead of blessing the lives of our brethren, is actually leading them away to destruction. Didn't Satan think, or at least pretend, to have the best interest of everyone in, in, in his heart and his mind when he said, I will make sure not one of them is lost? So out of his, quote, love for his neighbor, for his brethren, for everyone else, for mankind, he tried to do something that he thought, or at least he he put out as thinking, would be the salvation of all. But anything we try to put out short of God's plan for us cannot lead to our fulfillment and happiness and peace. Therefore, we must love God before we love our neighbor. Otherwise, our attempts are going to be misguided at best and harmful at worst. I think that distinction is important. And it's going to make a difference. Peter's going to dive into this a little bit more. I'm going to finish with this, but let me let me first go to something that, that I think Nate would really appreciate. As, as far as trying to understand this and putting God first, verse 9, But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. See, this even goes down the same thing that we're saying. Can the blind lead the blind? How can you love your brethren and lead them away if you can't see? Because not only are you going to get hurt, but you're going to hurt them too. Learn to love God first before you try to love your neighbor. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. There it is. There it is. He has forgotten on one hand, but what has he forgotten? That he was purged. Remember, sanctification, purging, comes before obedience. And it's important. He forgot. He's forgotten those things. Therefore, he cannot be obedient. He's left that behind. He's cut himself off from that. So what is so important? It's important to not forget. And because it is, it'll say this. Verse 12, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. And then keep going. Verse 13, Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in, here it is again, remembrance. And then turn the page. And in and, and verse 15, in fact, it's at the bottom of this page. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. So we've just repeated the time three times, remember, 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 and emphasized before that the point that if you forget you become blind, misguided, and you lead others astray. And that love that you think you have for your brother is misplaced. It's going to lead to their hurt and yours. You have to remember him. You have to have him at the center. You have to have him first. You have to, as the order of things, have love for God before you can have love for your brother. It's important. The order is important. And then he says in verse 10, Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. And again, remember what we said by election. To make your calling and your choosing 
to be chosen. And and I want to I want to even simplify this even more. What is the calling and election that that that, that be that, that that's made sure? A calling is to have your voice called. But an election is to hear the voice and respond, to listen and obey. So what does it mean to have a calling and election made sure? It means to hear the word of God, what he wants you to do, to hear his plan. Instead of being putting your plan first, to hear his plan and then to put your will in line with his and do it. The hearing is the calling part. The election is the choosing part. When you choose to follow him, you're chosen of him as well. When you hear his call and choose to follow, then you are called and chosen, just as you have heard the call and have elected to follow. It's an important thing, and, and he finishes this. It's kind of interesting how he finishes this. We also have a more, in verse 19, we also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, unto that the day dawn and the day star ariseth in your hearts. The more sure word of prophecy, as explained in the New Testament, is a testimony of Jesus Christ. What is a testimony of Jesus Christ? That's a testimony of God's plan. God's plan was, whom shall I send? And Christ saying, here am I, send me. And because of that, a world was created. Because of that, we could come and inherit this earth and we could live here. And because of that, he was going to die and provide a way that we could resurrect and live again. And this is a testimony of Jesus Christ, is an affirmation of the plan of God saying, God, I trust you. I hear you, and I will follow you. And when we believe that, the Lord will also call us. And if we hear and recognize his voice because we're familiar with what it means and how it has spoken, we can follow him and and choose to follow him as well. And it talks about until the day star arises in your hearts. What what is that? And and they say here at the day star, if you have the Latin, if if you're familiar with Spanish, it might even be fun to read this in the Latin because it says, at Lucifer, until Lucifer arises in your hor- in, in corazones, your, your hearts. You're like, Lucifer? Well, luce means light, and feros is to, to carry, to bear. And in the Greek, where this, this is written, it's phosphoros, phosphorus. Phos, uh, meaning light, and feros, to, to, bury, to, to bear, to carry. It's a light bearer. And, and it refers to a day star, and the idea is that Venus is a, a star that's closer to the sun. And because it's closer to the sun, we often see it in the evening after the sun sets. We often see it in the morning before the sun arises. That This planet that's closer to the star, it's, it's what brings the sun to shine. It's the small light that precedes the great light. And when you receive the small light, and give heed to it, the large light will rise in your, in your hearts to where there's no question. When that first small light shines, you might not be 100% sure. Maybe you're just hoping or maybe you're believing, you're trying to follow it. You're following this little star and you're believing in this little star and, and you're rewarded by the greater star coming and the greater confirmation and, and it's almost like this little star being kind of that calling, the hearing the voice and you choosing and the calling and election, the little star followed by the bright star, the sun rising in your heart. So I, I like the imagery and I like what Peter's saying with this. And kind of an interesting side note on this, this is actually the only time 
the word Lucifer shows up in the scriptures as well and 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 even then we can't really say that it does show up in the scriptures at least not in the original Lucifer never shows up in the Hebrew it never shows up in the Greek but in the Greek we get phosphoros light bearer which is the the Latin Lucifer so in the Latin scriptures we we get the Lucifer showing up L- Lucifer is a Latin word to to translate light bear from from the Greek from from what's being written here where you see Lucifer in the scriptures in English is in Isaiah chapter 14 and it comes from a translation of the Hebrew Halel ben Shachar and and Halel Isaiah was really good at at creating words and and he took a verb Halel we we might recognize from hallelujah to praise, to to give praise, pride. And and he turned it from a verb of, of praising to a noun and a name. Proud, praised, boastful one. Son of the morning. And 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 so there's there's kind of a little bit of a play on words. In in this case right here, the way Peter's using it, he's not referring to the devil. And 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 they did not use Lucifer like we use it in modern terms. And and words take on meanings based on how people understand those words and the context. And and so we we can't take our modern context of those words and and say this is what they were saying. We've created that meaning looking back at the scriptures. Uh, Hopefully that that, that makes a little bit of sense. All right, last last part, I promise, and and we'll be done. This is 2 Peter chapter 2, and, and I find a lot intriguing here with this. In chapter uh, 2, verse 1, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. And it's it's kind of interesting. You got to think, wait a second. Peter keeps doing this, where he's almost talking about two different groups of people. There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. And and it almost sounds like he's talking about, hey, in my time, it's almost like he's he's reaching through time and saying there were false prophets today among all of us. But among you there shall be false teachers, similar to the false prophets that we had, who privately or privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. And and this is the kicker for me. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. You're going to have teachers that are going to try to bring you away. But it almost sounds, uh, there's almost, there's kind of two ways that you can translate this and, and, and read this. By way of evil speaking of the way of truth. How, how are evil teachers going to pull you away from following Christ? Well, they're going to do it by speaking evil of those that Christ have, has anointed to guide them, of the teachers that Christ has put here on earth, of the way, of the church, of the gospel. They're going to speak evil of the way that you should go to where you look at that and say, oh, yeah, and, and all they have to do is get you to turn away from that. And when you start saying, well, the church this or the church that. Or when you start pointing fingers at the Lord's anointed and saying, well, the prophet, you know, maybe he was, maybe he was a little bit misguided. Maybe he let himself go after his own personal. Maybe he was a prophet, but he fell away. And, and maybe he did this or maybe he did that. Then you find yourself criticizing the way and turning away. That's what the teachers today are trying to do, according to Peter. I think he gets it right. I think he nails it. As, as a prophet himself, as the, as the leader of this dispensation after Christ has passed away, he sees it. And he cautions us. And, and, and then I said there was two ways that you can see this, right? One, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of, they're falling away. But also, listen to this. 
by reason of whom? By whom? The, the ones that fall away, because they follow the false teachers, by reason of that, they shall speak evil of the, the, the way of truth, shall be spoken evil by those who fall away. So, so there's two different ways to read that. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. So take this back to what Peter was saying. You cannot love your neighbor if you do not love God, because what are you trying to do? In your misguided attempts, because remember, these are teachers. They're false teachers, but they're teachers. Let me show you the right way. The way you're going is wrong. Well, if you aren't if you aren't built on God and his way, you're what you're doing is speaking evil of the way of truth and you're pulling people away from that. And Peter has a word of caution and he says, "For God spared not the angels that sin, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment." All those in the beginning who rather than say, I will do what you want me to do, here am I, send me, who said, I've got a better idea, or he's got a better idea, weren't spared. They were cast out. They were they were kicked out of heaven. They didn't have a place anymore. They didn't have the opportunity to inherit what we inherited. The earth was not the same inheritance to them as it was to us. Rather than being their paradise, it was their prison. And you know what? It's kind of interesting. They give us a good indicator to how to know where we stand on this and, and, and how we're doing. Are we the false teachers or are we accurate teachers? And, and I think a lot of it lies in that speaking evil of the way of truth. Because we're going to go fast forward here now when we talk about verse 10. But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. And when we're talking about this, despise government. And and no, this isn't just government. I, I, although I think there is a correlation, when they're talking about order, when they're talking about uh, power. And they say, presumptuous are they self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of the dignities. They're talking here about the church, and they're talking about the leaders of the church. And, and it goes back to, I will not be ruled by them. I'm not going to subject myself to them. Do you see now why Peter couched that conversation about a husband and a wife, because really he's talking about our salvation. It goes much deeper than just a simple marriage relationship. If we refuse to be humble and submit ourselves, and it goes both ways, where, where is their salvation? If you refuse to be humble, and, and that not that the key difference between Christ and Satan? When Christ said, I will do what you want me to do? When he said, I wish that I didn't have to take of this cup, nevertheless not my will, but thy will. When Satan's plan was my will. It's all about subjecting ourselves. Be subject. Not just, not just one both need to be subject. Everyone, anyone who wants to be saved must be subject. Now think of the Lord, not as a husband, but as God. We all, the church, we must be subject to him and not sit and think we know better. I'm going to change the ordinances. I'm going to change the, the governance of God. I think I'm going to do a better job. I'm going to create my own church or I am going to speak evil. And, and that's a big key about this is that speaking evil. Verse 11, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusations against them before the Lord. He's saying, draw the contrast here. 
these powerful heavenly beings that are watching over and seeing these people act evil, they don't run back to the Lord and sit there and, and complain about everything these people do. Why? Aren't the angels eager, eager to tattle? Aren't the angels eager to be like, oh, God, you better smite those people. Look at how blasphemous they are and, and, and make all these railings and accusations? No, because the key difference is the angels want them to be saved. Christ wanted them to be saved. Patience, long-suffering, love. You know what? I'm going to try to let that slide because hopefully he's going to see the error of his ways. Hopefully he's going to get it. Hopefully he's going to change. You know what? Let's, let's, let's offer a little bit of sanctification, a little bit of purification, and maybe that'll lead to some obedience and some change. It's not out there to try to criticize, to condemn, to point fingers. And so that's a good thing to be able to, to stack us up against is to see if we are following the right. If we're so eager to run out and point fingers at everyone that's doing wrong, if we're so eager to point out and say this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong, maybe we're the false teachers at that point. What we need to do is subject ourselves and love God first. And then we can love and guide and help others to see our light and to pull them to that light and to teach them about that light. And these angels, as powerful as they are, are not bringing railing accusations against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be the burden, this is verse 12, I'm sorry, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and they shall utterly perish in their own corruption. And just because God is kind and loving and patient doesn't mean he's going to just forgive everyone. Doesn't mean he's just going to let everybody do their own thing and be okay and, and, and everything's okay and we can't evil speak anything. Because did he not cast down the angels when they rebelled? And is he also not going to, to, to throw them down at the end that don't follow him? So how do we, how do we navigate this? And, and this is the last verse and this is what I want to end with. Verse 9. And this is Second Peter chapter 2. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. And, and I, want to, I want to put emphasis on this word godly again. It's not godlike. It's not obedient. It's not perfect. The word godly here means those that love, that reverence, that listen to God. The ones that fear God or love God or appreciate God, who say, you know what? I, 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 I believe you. Maybe even what they're saying is, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I want to. It's that desire. It's not the godlike that be are obedient that have become gods. It's the godlike that are willing, that want to, that desire to. And what's the blessing to those that love God, that want to follow God? The Lord knoweth how to deliver the ones that love God out of temptations. So here's the problem. We struggle with temptations. We have these trials. We have what's here. And the Lord knows how to deliver us from them. How? Because it says at the very beginning, He sanctifies us. And through sanctification, we learn obedience. 
and we're delivered from those temptations. We're spared from them because those are to help us to change, to become, to grow, to learn. But if we don't learn or grow, then those temptations destroy us. So it's not that God is sitting there willing to just throw everyone out. I think God is willing to help anyone who's willing to listen. But for anyone out there who criticizes his way and says, I have a better plan, they will never be delivered from the temptations. It's the temptations that will destroy them. It's the temptations that cast them out. It's the temptations that separate them from what they could enjoy most. And so the gospel becomes very simple. If we love God and seek Him, He blesses us, He sanctifies us, He strengthens us, He helps us. And through that, we become obedient and change into what's going to make us happy. That's what I get from Peter. Thank you for listening to my rant. It would have been much greater to kind of have you guys here to have a little bit of back and forth. Uh, we, we, we are doing the best we can. We, we know that sometimes situations come up, uh, but, but these things are important to us. The scriptures are important to us, and, and being able to connect with you guys and, and, and read through these scriptures is important to us. So thank you for being patient with us this week as, as we put this out here. We, we will have next week's episode out to you at the regular time and, and, and hopefully enjoy some, some more consistency going forward as we finish up this year and get ready for the, the Book of Mormon next year. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for, for, for tuning in. And until next week, see ya!